Greetings to everybody at Westonka at Bush Lake, those that are online with us and everybody here gathered, I think it's going to be a great day. There's a new man in town, um, a new name, a new face. It's his 11th day of being here, Joshua Dobbs. Some of you are Vikings fans. <laughs> that win last week was extraordinary. I mean, unlike... I think any win I've ever seen, and yet what stood out to me was not the win, it was, in fact, the adversity. That you heard Joshua Dobbs speak about the reality that one has to expect adversity. Life is this way, and then it's learning to manage with agility the adversity that comes um, into our lives. So today we're going to wrap up a six-week series. It's been really a meaningful six weeks. You've really been terrific. I said, could we do six weeks on mental health and really be okay with that? You've been tremendous. It's been a good, good series. And the series is called Longing for Better Days. It's a series on mental well-being, on faith and flourishing, because God made us to flourish. But sometimes our emotional well-being can be hit with adversity, it makes it difficult to manage, and so we sought to step into that to bring help and hope for us to uh, manage our emotional well-being. We had a, a, a definition of mental health at the first week from the World Health Organization. I really liked it. I think it was comprehensive and helpful. Let me revisit it with you. That mental health is a state of mental well-being that enables people to cope with the stresses of life, the adversity, to realize their abilities, to learn well and work well, and contribute to their community. It is an integral component of health and well-being that underpins our individual and collective abilities to make decisions, build relationships, and shape the world we live in. And we complemented that definition throughout the series with this perspective that when we face mental health challenges, it's usually because of a heightened sense of concern and a diminished sense of control. More concern, less control you feel, the greater anxiety, stress, depression, whatever the case might be. Our hope has been to share truths that would close that gap, and I pray that's been the case for you. 30,000 feet up, I mean, our primary goal has been this, that Westwood would be a church that heals. Let's make it okay to talk about mental health that there is indeed a place where sometimes you need professional assistance and therapists and pastors and even medication. But most of the time, most of the time, God intends to bring healing through his presence in us and through us for each other. So let's make it okay to talk about mental health and to be present with each other to see that that fruit comes to fruition in our life and our journey. Let me just share a word about last week, which I think was the hardest and most difficult message to hear and to receive. It was about darkness and deep darkness. We looked at Psalm 88 as well as suicide. And wow, it, it was, um, I'll just tell you, I was undone. The stories have been pouring out all week from many of you in your own personal place of dealing with darkness, but as well, how many of you have lost a loved one or acquaintance or a friend to suicide? It, it was a bit overwhelming to even receive it. But I'm so grateful that we've come together because even in the stories, there's been hope that's been expressed as well. In fact, I received this note. I want to share it with you from somebody in our church family who was here last Sunday. During Sunday's church message, I was literally choking back tears. I had been feeling so hopeless the past month. I, I find myself now in a more 
peaceful place today and trusting in God's plan. See, being together, it ignites a hope. We need each other in this journey. And when we come together with that kind of spirit, we see Christ work in, in and through us. And I'm so glad that he's doing that. It turns us to God, in fact, when we come together. I also received um, from a, a friend who lost a brother to suicide um, earlier in the week, these two books. And they were not on our list, but at the end of the week, we were able to include them. I want to reference them. Grieving a Suicide by um, Albert um, Sue, which is a, a book on dealing with comfort in the midst of that loss. And their Fear Gone Wild by Kayla Stoltenkline, which, by the way, both of these books we've put online. Just to remind you, each week we put resources that we were speaking about that day online. They're available to you, and we encourage you to resource them. I skimmed through them, these two books, and I thought, oh, these are really good. They need to be in our list. Well, a personal highlight for me in these six weeks actually came from an eighth grade girl. Um, Lily is her name. And after service, she came up. These are some of my favorite moments as a pastor, I'll be honest. Eighth grade. She comes down and she says, a year ago, I learned a poem that has really helped me with mental health. And then she recited the poem by memory. And I go, well, would you write that down so I could share it with our church family? This is your day. Her poem. Your mind is like a garden. Your thoughts are the seeds. You can grow flowers or you can grow weeds. Isn't that sweet? Isn't it simple? Isn't it clarifying? Let's grow flowers. Let's grow flowers. And so the title of my message today, when we think about how do we grow flowers, it is to tap into confidence. That's what I'm speaking about. Tapping into the right person. Tapping into right understanding. Tapping into the right approach. And my message today is really quite simply this. When you are in need, approach God's throne and receive mercy and find grace. That's his promise. That's the message that we're going to give our attention to today. And of course, those words are familiar to you because they come from our theme verse of 2023, Hebrews 4.16. And we've recited this, which today, by the way, I get to preach and teach on Hebrews 4. All year long, we've been going through this verse, but this is the first time I get to preach in depth on the text. Am I a little bit excited about it? I am, and I pray you are too. So recite with me in unison, Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. To really understand this confidence by which we would approach God's throne and receive mercy and find grace, you have to really go to the verse that precedes it. It anchors verse 16, and that's verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So how do we receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need? We begin by tapping into the right person. We have the right person. In fact, the verse that precedes this verse is verse 14. So verse 15 anchors verse 16, and it anchors um, verse 14. And it brings clarity, absolute clarity, to the right person that we're to tap into. 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. And so we find in him the right person, that Jesus is the right person, Jesus, the high priest, he is the perfume of this message. He is the perfume of this whole series. He is the perfume of our lives, that it is his aroma that just compels us to be able to receive a mercy, to find grace to help us in times of need. And I get to focus this day in this message totally, completely on Jesus. This is a message. I mean, this is joyful to be able to do this. And I pray that it will lift you up as much as it has lifted me up as well. I have to begin right away with the passage here because since we have a a great high priest. That is Old Testament language that's generally foreign to us. We don't know what a high priest is or what a high priest does. But I will tell you this, you need to know that the high priest is the most, single most important person in the religious system of Judaism. And if you look at the various um, levels of priests within Judaism, um, there are many, many different kinds of priests, but there is only one high priest. And the job of the high priest is really important. It is their job to represent the whole nation of Israel on that special day called the Day of Atonement. And so the job of the high priest is on that special day to do something really profound, and that is to walk through or to pass through a veil. So there was a veil at the temple, and on this side of the veil was the holy place, and on this other side of the veil was the most holy place, the sanctuary of God, representing the presence of God. It was job of the high priest to pass through that veil and to sit on this golden mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the very presence of God and offer a goat's blood that would cover the sins, that would atone for the sins of the nation for that year. But that atoning process didn't last forever, ever, so that there would be a high priest that would come every single year for the day of atonement with that job of offering blood to bring atonement and restore relationship with people back into God. And the high priest repeated that each year, but when Christ came, friends, it would change. There would be uh, an abolishing of that Old Testament practice of sacrifices. It came with Jesus Christ, with his death and his resurrection. And you can see what happens here in the passage. Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven. That is, he has passed through to the most holy place, to the sanctuary of God, to the very living presence of the Lord. Through his death and resurrection, he passed through in order to restore right relationship with God for all of us as we by faith embrace the reality of his, um, his atoning death uh, on our behalf, the covering of our sins, um, has been taken care of, and it's once for all. And so with Jesus, we don't come back once a year. You can take any moment of any day, and if you've been in a place of sin and brokenness, you can bring it to the presence of the Lord, and he receives you, and he frees you. He sets you free from that given place. This is a beautiful gift given to all of humanity, and we're all included in it. So we find that we have this great high priest. 
Through his death and resurrection has made atonement for us and our sins once and for all. We have, in other words, the right person. Jesus is his name. That's his human name. Son of God is his divine name. And he's restoring our hearts so we can live in right relationship with him. And it's important because when we need help, we tend to do one of two things. One, we tap our own shoulders and we isolate. We draw deep within and we begin to deepen the darkness, not lighten the darkness, because there's mounds of ants that begin to chew away at our thoughts. And the ants, A-N-T-S, is an acronym in the world of sociology and psychology that stands for um, this picture of automatic negative thoughts. And when we withdraw, we tap our own shoulder and we're in a place of need, we go, I'm just gonna take care of it myself. I go deep within, it creates a spiral and the darkness deepens and the ants begin to chew away. Or we tap on the shoulder of a friend or a mom or a dad or a colleague or whomever and we say, could you, could you bend your ear my way? And you share with them and all of a sudden the ants find their way out. It releases that spiral downwards so there's an upward tap. And all of that is good. It's a good tap to connect with a friend or somebody when you're in a place of need. But the greatest tap is to tap on the shoulder of Jesus Christ. He is the right person. Tap on his shoulder. First, always, let him be our first tap because it is the right tap and the right person. And when we do, the second thing we find in this passage is we begin to tap into the right understanding. And it's an important expression because more than anyone, he is the only one who truly understands the depth of what we go through in pain and in temptation in life. When our emotional well-being is lowest of lows, he knows so we back up and we come to that next verse, verse 15 again. And we're going to pause in this for a moment because for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize. And if you're taking notes, you could circle that word empathize. This is the NIV version interpretation. In most other versions, I think they have it right and NIV kind of misses it a little bit. I think the better word that you find in other translations is sympathize. There's a nuance there, but it's an important nuance. So I want to replace empathize with sympathize. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And so we find that there's this word sympathize. I want to sit in that for a moment because it's so insightful. Sympathize is a word that gets a little bit lost in translation from the Greek into the English, um, but it's a word that's a compound word, and it's formed through this prefix of with, and it carries the idea of unrestrained withness, felt solidarity. You feel the depth of that? When you just say sympathize, it kind of sits up here, but the weight of it is this felt solidarity. So you would see it in the high notes of life, like with a newborn baby who rests for the first time on the chest of its mama, that there is a felt solidarity. But it's more than that. It's even in darkness and in pain. So when we're in pain, Jesus is pained. When we're suffering, 
Jesus suffers with us. So the writer of Hebrews is doing something really magnificent here. It's like he's taking us by the hand and he's walking us to the very presence of the Lord and taking our hand and placing it on the heart of Jesus. He wants us to feel the heartbeat of Jesus. His unrestrained withness. His felt solidarity. Oh, the depth of this is so extraordinary and so beautiful. We have to receive it because... Our intuition is to not receive it. It just isn't. Our intuition is that Jesus is with us, that Jesus is on our side, that Jesus is helping us when all is well because all is well means that there's evidence that God's favor is in my life. So when your relationships are bliss and your job is flourishing and money is flowing and your kids are compliant and your health is vibrant, then I have the evidence that God is with me and he's on my side. But I want you to notice, the writer of Hebrews is saying the exact opposite. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our, say it with me, weaknesses. weaknesses. Oh, behold the sympathies of Jesus the Christ in our weaknesses. In other words, um, he steps in with this unrestrained witness, this felt solidarity when our relationships are broken and our jobs are flatlined, when money is not flowing, when children are not compliant, when health is at best vulnerable. Oh, Jesus is most drawn to us in the place of that distress. In our weaknesses, he comes to us. His heart is comprehensively drawn into our distress. You know, there's this little cliche that we often use when we meet with people in plane. We, we, we say to them, I feel your pain, or I've been where you are before. Have you ever had somebody say that to you? Or have you said it to somebody? Probably you have. The intent is good. But if you start to think about it, you start to realize that in some ways what we're doing is a person has come to us in a place of need and pain, and we have not attended to them. We've kind of hijacked it and brought it back to a moment of our pain rather than to be present with them. If we want to be a healing church, we must attend to people in their place of pain, in their place of weakness. And that's what Jesus does for us. He, he comes into that given place. And I'm so glad that, that he does. He moves into that arena. It, it shows that he is with us and for us because pain is so profoundly unique and personal to, uh, to each of us. How, how can any of us truly know what a person goes through? I think we get a measure of it, but it's unique to each of us. But Jesus can. He feels our pain. He does. He, he is moved by our sorrow. Um, he is aware of our tears. In fact, we find that this Jesus that we come to worship on this day is touched by our failures and he steps in with unrestrained witness. So we can step in as people. We go through things, and no doubt, when people have gone through something we've gone through, it is helpful in some measure. Think of um, particularly right now, I'm kind of following the story of the Olympian um, gold medalist Simone Biles, the gymnast. Are you familiar with her story? If you've been watching over the last uh, couple of months and competitions in preparation for the Olympics next year, she's doing really, really well. 
and I'm just so happy for her. I have an interest in gymnastics, not because I ever participated in gymnastics, but I have five sisters and each of them did, and two of them um, were state champions. And I'm telling you, the hardest sport I have ever gone to see and to witness is gymnastics. I mean, it's frightening what they do with their bodies when they're in midair. And I just, I was horrified every time I'd go with my sisters, I'll let them live, let them live. It's quite, they're they're so athletic in what they can do. But I'm happy for Simone because of what's been happening um, in the success she has in light of the last Olympics. Do you remember what happened to her? And she couldn't do her routines. And she had to bow out of most of her um, events. And did America reach out with great sympathy for her? No. They did not. By and large, some certainly people did, but the news media, I mean, they just despised her for her failure, and they, you know, they said, you've taken a spot from somebody else. And Simone Biles had come out, if you recall, and said, you know, I'm dealing with some mental health obstacles. And it created an uproar for people. It wasn't a good thing for her to say in terms of how people expect. You just suck it up and you go do it, but that's what she was dealing with at that time. And then a few months later, she kind of pulled away from the public eye, probably wise, um, and it came out a few months later that she was experiencing what is known as the twisties. It's a gymnastic term, and it speaks to gymnasts who um, have a mental block when they're flying in midair, the mental block hits and they lose control of their body. Now that would be terrifying, right? And this is what was happening to her. But then also when it was diagnosed that she was dealing with the twisties, Lori Hernandez said, I have had the twisties before, it's her termmate, hated it so much, it's painful, it actively makes you feel like you're not the caliber of athlete that you are. And the ants, automatic negative thoughts, start to define who we are and what we can do, rather than God and who he made us to be and what he made us to do. And we find here, I listen to this, I step into the story and I think, man, if I had to do a double flip on high bars, I know that I would get the twisties, and you probably would too. Just thinking about it gives me the twisties, more or less going up in there. It would be a double flop, not a double flip in my journey. <laughs> Jesus sympathizes, is what Hebrews is saying, with our twisties. When he was midair on the cross, losing control of his body because people wanted him dead, but the difference is he chose it. He chose the twisties that occurred because of our sin and just made a mess of his body, and he took our sin upon himself. He chose to do that. And so verse 15 really brings more clarity telling us why Jesus is so close, why he sympathizes in our places of pain and weakness, why there's this unrestrained withness, and why there is this felt solidarity. We see it here. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And so, wow. Where we failed, he succeeded. Where we give in to temptation, he stood strong. When we collapse under the pressure, um, he abides and remains obedient to the Father's will and way, even in the midst of it all.
C.S. Lewis um, heard people um, objecting to this saying because if Jesus really did understand temptation and what we go through, then he would have yielded to it. If Jesus never sinned, then he doesn't know what temptation is like or how strong it is has been the objection. But C.S. Lewis, this great thinker of the 20th century, he responded to that objection with some keen insight, and I share it with you. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full extent what temptation means. He knows to the full what temptation means. I just think this is great. The only complete um, realist is Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus sympathizes with our weakness and our temptation because he's faced it. And not just that, he fought off the monsters of it all the way through the cross. So much so, and I pray you take this in the right way. He does not roll his eyes when you're in pain. More pain. He does not click his tongue when he sees you struggling with temptation. He sympathizes with unrestrained witness, with felt solidarity. No, when you need help, approach God to receive mercy and to find grace, and you will be blessed in that. So tap into the right person and tap into right understanding of the sympathies of our high priest, Jesus the Christ. But the third thing is to tap into the right approach. And what kind of approach is the right approach? Well, we see it's found in this beautiful little word in Hebrews 4.16, our theme verse this year. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with, say it with me, confidence. confidence. That's the right approach. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. How good is this? I want you to know this is not a self-confidence. This is a Christ confidence. That is, it's not a confidence that says, look at me and what I can do to get myself out of this. It is a Christ confidence that says, look at him and what he can do to get me out of this. Or, it's not a self-esteem. It's a Christ-esteem. It's not a confidence in our own worth and getting yourself to feel good about yourself so you can muster up the strength to get through the times of weaknesses. It's a Christ esteem that has to do with his worth and his abilities because he is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than all you could think or imagine. That's the kind of confidence we need to have. And why is that important? Because for five decades, almost six decades now, our country has been nurturing and cultivated this language around self-esteem and helping the next generation to feel good about themselves. And how is that working out for us? I think we need a paradigm shift, do we not? If you are a parent and if you are a grandchild, with all humility and all passion, cultivate 
a Christ confidence, a Christ esteem, not a self-esteem. It's too fickle. It's too vulnerable. It, it will cause implosion after implosion that we are to hold to our faith that God has given to us. He is the anchor of our strength, our emotional health, and our well-being because we know that Self-confidence and self-esteem is wishy-washy because we live with this undercurrent of insecurity. I referenced it a couple of weeks. And for some of you right now, that insecurity, everybody has it. But for some of you, it's just a trickle. You're doing pretty well with yourself, feeling good about yourself. Other times, I mean, it is a tsunami caused by an earthquake that happens in our life. It's an insecurity because of how you look because we're all concerned with how we look or how we talk or our performance in school or on the athletic field or even at work. It's an insecurity because you have this fear of rejection or this fear that you're not enough. And right now, I know that there's some of you who feel this. You just feel like, I look around, I see people my same age, I see them prospering, I go, what's wrong with me? I'm just not enough. And for others, it's an insecurity because you just got hit by impossible circumstances and difficult people. I'm just saying that self-confidence and esteem is fickle. And look no further than who's been in the news this week, Matthew Perry, and the star of the Friends sitcom. I've been tracking that story because it was part of my generational flow on these sitcoms, and it's taken. I've even tuned into some of the YouTube stories that he's telling because he wants to be remembered for his commitment toward recovery rather than the funny moments in that, that sitcom he was part of. I came across one, and he said these words. He said, the success of Friends, that sitcom, open doors, and I purchased a home with a pool and a hot tub. He was so excited about it. And it lasted seven months. Seven months. And he was empty. Lacking confidence. Now, friends, I've said this often, the words of Andre now, and I am not what I have. I am not what I do. I am not what people say about me. I am the beloved son or daughter of the living God. That's the anchor of our strength. He was looking for that recovery to receive mercy and to find grace in his time of need. And God sees that. So it says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. And some people think that the throne is kind of like a, more of a principal's office. It's kind of a weird term. We don't talk about thrones so much. So we think of it more like being a principal's office. And I had this memory as I was studying for the message that uh, when I was in ninth grade, my science teacher was Mr. Lemke. Can I just say he was an intense science teacher? And so much so, I mean, he was a very pale-skinned guy, but when he got mad, I mean, he was red hot. His face just got red. I mean, steam came out of it when he got mad. There was a kid in the class who was acting up one day, and I won't say the name of the kid, but I mean, this, in front of all of us, he just let the kid have it. And he said, I get out of my classroom, and you make your way down to the principal's office right now, and I'll make my way there, and we're going to have a conversation. I was terrified. My heart was beating so fast. I go, that poor kid, what's going to happen to him? Do you ever notice that somebody gets sent to the principal's office, and they they disappear. Where are I never saw the kid again in my life. I mean, he didn't come back to the science class. He didn't show up. I, I, I think he's six feet under somewhere. I don't know. He just disappeared. But I think that's how some people think of God's throne. It's a throne of punishment. Because our insecurity is such we're just waiting for him to let us have it. But it's so far from the truth. We're told to approach God's throne with confidence because Goodness flows there. 
The word confidence, in fact, means boldness with freedom of speech. So we can come before God and say anything. So friends, mercy is what allows us to tap um, into God's sympathy, his unrestrained withness, um, his felt solidarity. He understands the troubles we endure and the temptations that we face so much so that it's his mercy that gets us out of trouble and it's freely given to us. And grace taps into God's undeserved favor. We don't deserve it, but this goodness keeps flowing toward us, in us, through us, and for us, and we give thanks. So I'll just wrap up with a gesture, if I may, a posture, if you would help me. If we do it together, we'll all be good with it. When I was a young dad and each of our kids were born, I have specific memory of taking my hand and placing it on the chest of each of the children to listen to their heartbeat, their racing heartbeat. You know that the infant's heartbeat races at 100 to 160 beats per minute. It's a galloping horse. For adults, it's about 60 to 100. And I just place my hand there and wonder. The beauty of that is still with me to this day. I wonder if you would help me for a moment. Would you be willing just to place your hand on your heartbeat? And hear it and feel it. Do you know that for us it's 60 to 100 beats per minute unless we're in a place of stress and anxiety then our fight or flight hormone steps in and it spikes like that of an infant. Just put your hand. What are you feeling? With your other hand, if we all do it, at West Tonka, Bush Lake online, just put up your hand in your imagination, put it on the heartbeat of Jesus. Just rest it on Jesus' heart. Feel his heartbeat for you. Feel his gracious disposition toward you. Feel his tender affection for you so that you can calmly approach the throne of God's grace with confidence and receive mercy and find help in your time of need. This is the Jesus, the right person with right understanding, with right approach, who helps us again and again and again. So let's wrap up the series together. If you would join me in unison, let us say Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And open your hands and receive this blessing. Father God, thank you for your son, Jesus, son of God, our high priest, who ascended into the heavenly place after his death and resurrection because of our sin, to restore relationship, to make things new. And today I know there's some who are gathered in this given moment who are in a great place, and the great place they're in is because of your goodness in their life. And I know there are some who are in a really rough patch. And there you are. 
unrestrained witness, felt solidarity. We are not alone. You see our need. You meet our needs. You set us free. Give us that hope, we ask. To your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name.